You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today, we are in Foligno. Where are we, Daniel? Well, Richard, Daniele we... Fribrancini, Frappuccino. Well, uh, Richard Dengo. Grazie. Do you like that? Grazie Richard mille. Dengo. Yes. And oh, that was sorry. a reaction. That was our friend uh, Filippo from Beat On Podcast came up with that. Mm. Having, when I relayed, well, one of our pilgrimages yesterday when we stopped at Rocca Pia, the, the famous spot where uh, Costante Girardengo curtailed, ended his uh, 1921 Giro. So uh, Richard Dengo, when he saw the picture of you with uh, your arms and the sign of a of a cross. Um, what was the question? Where are where we? Where are we? We are in Assisi and we are pretty much in the shadow, literally in the shadow of the famous, the very, very famous Basilica di San Francesco, the San Francis of Assisi's Basilica, um, which was built in the 13th century. Which This hill that we're looking at used to be called the Hill of Hell because criminals in Assisi were put to death there. And when St. Francis was what well, was canonized, they decided to make it a, a hill of um, the Colle del Paradiso, the hill of paradise instead. And they started building this incredible basilica, which we might talk a little bit more about later. It's an incredible spot we have here in our hotel for the rest day tomorrow, two nights here. Um, as you say, Daniel, just um, just beneath the old town of Assisi, we'll be wandering into there a little bit later. Um, we're very, in Umbria, aren't we? We're in Umbria, and it's a very it's a very typical Umbrian scene, isn't it? Very bright and sunny evening. The hills kind of hazy in the distance. Perugia, just over there. You and I both spent time in Perugia in the distant past, and Assisi from Perugia, very visible. And yet here we are just beneath it and it doesn't seem that high and yet no. there are there are these plains here but we remarked today i mean umbria is probably my favorite italian region the, the green heart of italy um, doesn't have any it was kind of overtaken by le marche tuscany. well le marche then became the hipsters tuscany the, the hipsters umbria which was previously the hipsters tuscany but um it doesn't have a coastline and um, as you know i'm not particularly fond of the sea so it, it suits me um extremely green but the the amazing thing about umbria is the concentration of just unbelievably be- beautiful towns. I mean, just to name a few of them today, we went through Spoleto. Spoleto, I, um, I was exchanging messages today with Marco Pinotti, a friend of the podcast, who got the, he took the pink jersey at Spoleto in 2007. There's a very famous aqueduct there. As we went past, I sent Marco a picture of the aqueduct. I think he was quite touched that someone had remembered. Um, and other towns as well. Spello was just stunning when we left. Um, Spello binding. Yes, when we left for Foligno tonight and, um, and, and Trevi earlier in the day, nothing to do with the, the Trevi fountain, fountain in uh, Rome. They use, they, they are so-called for different reasons. Um, but Trevi kind of looks like a, depending on where you spent your childhood, it either looks like a walnut whip, remember those Richard? Mm. Or uh, an arancino, uh, a rice ball, a Sicilian sort of conical rice ball. Mm. Um, but yeah, there are so many amazing towns here, even you know the smaller ones, Bevagna, Montefalco, and, and as you say, Perugia. Rieti, we went through. Yes, we went through very, Rieti more nice, later. Very nice. Um, we started in L'Aquila, and uh, I had a delicious uh, cappuccino at 12 minutes past 12, or thereabouts. An illicit cappuccino. I, I actually had a, a CUE, Daniel, for that. Uh, cappuccino use exemption um so i was okay i wasn't arrested although you tried to get me into trouble um beautiful town uh, stage not in umbria the stage started there before you say anything um it was a stage to foligno shortest stage of the race 138 kilometers i think today um and it was a sprinter stage but uh, not without its challenges there were some there were some lumpy climbs and we drove the course um the first climb it looked on the profile to be the toughest. It didn't seem that bad. Uh, the break actually went away before the climbing contained Simon Pillow, of course, of Androni Giocattoli, Umberto Marengo of Bardiani, Samuele Rivi of Eolo. I think I'm getting better. These at are also that. recidivists, aren't they? They've all, they've been in yeah. a few 
breaks, all of these chaps. They have. Um, Tackle van der Horn, who won a stage a week ago of Antemarche. And... And how do you pronounce it, Rich? Well, neither of us are particularly on point when it comes to Flemish pronunciation. So, over to our good friend, Hugo Korvitz from Het Newsblad. Daniel um, and Richie, we are speaking about Kobe Horsens. Well, you spoke to Kobe, Kobe, Kobe. Horsens, well, we're going to hear Horsens from him later, aren't we? This morning. Because this was an extraordinary piece of, I don't know, nominative determinism. I don't know what you call it. Serendipity. I think. Um, so that break went clear. They were never given too much of an advantage. And a level crossing went down, um, costing them almost a minute. Uh, that was unfortunate. Um we weren't sure what, what, what's done in those circumstances, Daniel. Apparently, if the bunch behind is stopped, they have to be stopped at the same time. Um, but occasionally, a, a, a level crossing is just considered almost like an, an act of God. Um, if, if, if riders are sent off course or something, then the, the race behind is stopped to allow uh, the advantage to be maintained. But yeah, that was unfortunate for them. So they were maybe caught a little bit earlier than they would have been, but they would have been caught anyway because into the final... Uh, 50 kilometres of the stage. Bora Hansgrohe really put the hammer down. There were a couple of climbs... They turned the extractor fan on, didn't they? <laughs> they did. A couple of climbs after Rieti. Um, one of them uncategorised, but Bora Hansgrohe really uh, made their presence felt at the front there. And, um, you know, as soon as they started... And it was impressive to see the likes of Emmanuel Buchmann, their their leader, their nominal leader, uh, contributing to the effort, which was all for Peter Sagan, of course. When, when I see Bora do this, I'm I always, or well, my mind always goes back to the 2013 Tour de France and Sagan was running for Liquid Gas at the time. And they did exactly the same thing. There was a, a stage to Albi and um, uh, there was a, a climb in the middle of the stage and they really, you know, they they wrung the neck of all the sprinters, all the other sprinters and Sagan won convincingly then the sprint. And it's been, you know, Sagan subsequently moved teams and he's been at Bora for, for few years now but they've made a bit of a well a speciality of this haven't they they have and um, it hasn't always worked i mean it didn't work a week ago the stage at taco van der horn one it didn't work at the tour de france last year as well but sagan won stage 10 of the giro last year and he obviously identified this as one where he could as his speed maybe wanes you know he has this advantage over some of the other sprinters where he can get up these climbs, despite his bulk, and we've been concentrating, we've been talking about his bulk. Yeah, no, we? and I think there are two things, aren't there? You can drop riders, which they did today. They dropped the likes of Nitzolo, Grunewagen, but also you tire other sprinters out, and they maybe come into the last kilometer or so a little bit less fresh than they would otherwise. And Sagan, Sagan has an advantage there, doesn't he? Because you know he's this supreme athlete, and he 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 retains his speed um, after a very hard stage. Yeah, we'll hear from his uh, sports director, Jens Zemke, a bit later on about how they managed that effort, you know, using their climbers to really um, go hard on the climbs without losing their own, not just Sagan, but his lead-out men as well. It was it was finely balanced, but as you say, Dylan Grunewagen was the first to go. Tim Erlier in the Chiclamino jersey also slid out the back. David Decker was dropped. He was sort of plan B, I suppose, for Jumbo Visma. Nizzolo... Uh, went out the back. There were a lot of sprinters that actually stayed in that front group, including Fernando Gaviria, Elia Viviani as well. Um, but it was a slightly easier job for Sagan in the final, but not by any means uh, a guarantee. It was a final that suited him, quite technical, quite narrow, twisty. Uh, you only really Fast. got sight of the finish, 200 metres to go. And he, he took it took it well he, he knew he had to be first into those corners and he was and he he won the sprint before then uh, there was quite a, a battle uh, for the final intermediate sprint which had time bonuses of course three two and one seconds and uh, Remco Evenepoel and his Dakota Quick Step team um, appeared at the front for that um, maybe signposted it a little bit too early and uh, Ineos Grenadiers responded and we saw quite a, a battle royale between uh, Bernal and Evenepoel, uh, Evenepoel edged it. He was second across the line. Uh, Narvaez of uh, Ineos Grenadiers actually took the three seconds uh, with Bernal taking one. So um, Evenepoel inched a second closer to Bernal, who remains in the in the pink jersey, despite a scare because there was a crash 
in the finish. And initially, yeah, I was about to say, what about this well, mythical split? Initially, that was a bit like Molise. There was a split. Did it exist? Or there didn't was it? a split because it was in the final three kilometers. Everyone was given at the same time. But initially, in the initial provisional results, Alexander Vlasov moved up to second overall at just one second. So, um, however, the results were revised. I'm, I'm Can not... I just go through the places oh. on the stage? I'm sorry. Sagan first, Gaviria second, Chimilai third. Worth mentioning Stefano Aldani of Lotus Sudal fourth and Gianni Vermeersch of Alps and Fenix fifth. Both of those riders obviously came with um, better sprinters than them, but um, responded pretty well to their sprinter's absence, finishing fourth and fifth. Am I allowed to speak now? You become very fastidious about Chiclamino the jersey the passes tapper. on to Sagan. No other changes in the jerseys. I wonder whether Vlasov, uh, there was a point this afternoon, and I don't know, I haven't checked this, um, but uh, whether he thought that he was in the pink jersey because I did see him leaving the Astana bus on foot in trainers. Um, I didn't notice what trainers they were. I didn't notice, you know, whether they were jog, sort perhaps. of Nike vapor flies. Whether he was he was in a hurry. Um, but usually, when that happens, you see a rider sort of making his way to the podium on foot. It's because there's been some kind of stewards inquiry. I remember last year at the Tour de France, Richard helped me out with Simon Yates. Adam Yates. Adam Yates. Sorry, Adam Yates. When he got the yellow jersey off. Um, you know, Alaphilippe, exactly the same. You know, half an hour after the finish, he was sort of um, escorted back to the podium by um, team I, staff well, I'll members. I'll tell you why that, that would have been, yeah. I, I think. Would, oh, no, that no, that's not true. But he would have been, had he moved up to second, he would have been wearing the white jersey, of best okay. young rider tomorrow. But he wouldn't have been presented with that on the podium because that is still Bernal. Okay. On, a, on a tangent, I was saying to you the other day, Daniel, that the, the white jersey, the young riders competition now seems completely pointless in, in the way the sport has gone. The top three um, in the white jersey competition are exactly the same as the top three in the pink jersey competition. And that has become a bit of a trend. And I think there should no longer be a jersey for the best young rider uh, because the best young riders are competing for the, the main prize. We need a best older riders jersey, a grey jersey. Still gassing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink, on rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. My name is Kevin Sprouse. I'm a sports medicine physician, head of medicine for EF Nippo Pro Cycling. And I also have a practice called Podium Sports Medicine in the U.S. One of my other positions is I'm a scientific advisor for Super Sapiens. Super Sapiens is a continuous glucose monitor, which means that it's a small device that an athlete or patient would wear on their body, usually on the back of the arm. And it monitors blood glucose levels 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's, it's a continuous ongoing measurement. These devices measure for 14 days uh, before the memory is full. And what it's doing is looking at the constant fluctuations in blood glucose. Uh, it's actually reading interstitial glucose, which is just off from the, the, the blood glucose, um, but gives us the same measurement in a consistent ongoing measure so that you can look at any time on your phone or on your connected device and see what your blood sugar is at that moment in time. The level of glucose in the blood is tightly related to your diet, your recovery. It's a very good metric for just kind of the state that the body is in at the given moment. For athletes, it's very tightly tied to your fueling for that effort. That can be fueling on the bike with what you've eaten since the start of the ride, but it also takes into account everything you did before the ride to kind of fill the tank overnight and then get to the start line in a good position. So it's a way to look at a metric that until now was really just one that we guessed at. You know, how do you feel? Do you feel like you're hungry? Do you feel like uh, you've had a bit of a hunger bonk? Those indicators lag far behind what's actually happening. So this gives us a real-time view in the same way that heart rate sensors have done, power meters have done. Now we've got a view into fueling and physiology while we're in the moment.
Yes, thanks to Super Sapiens. And if you want to enter our competition to win three months of free Super Sapiens sensors, please send in an audio clip or a video telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens to help you achieve your cycling goal. Make it less than 60 seconds. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to find out how to enter that competition. A final reminder as well that tomorrow, Tuesday, we'll do our rest day press conference. If you have a question, email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. So, Daniel, um, I said in our vlog earlier that Sagan might win less frequently now than he once did, but I think his wins have got better. There's usually, as with his win at the Giro last year on stage 10, that was a phenomenal effort. He's having to think differently about how to win um, he's having to be be smart. You know, he can't just w- sit and wait for for a sprint. As at one point, he 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 could have done. He wasn't always the fastest, but it was always a, a good option for him. He's having to be um, more resourceful, and the wins that he is taking tend to be thoroughly deserved and quite spectacular. And I think today's was. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of it is to do with the emergence of other riders of similar characteristics. Um, we've spoken about this before, how, you know, you go from being a sort of supreme, the, the kind of overlord of a certain type of, of race or finish, um, almost unbeatable, and it only takes one or two other riders of similar characteristics to to come along and all of a sudden you're the perennial disappointment or the pro- perennial bridesmaid. And, you know, you has that happened with Sagan and Van der Poel and Van Aert? You could argue that. I don't know how many times you know he's he's been up against them directly and lost, but it sort of feels a bit like that. In the same way that Sagan did that to say an Edval Bersenhagen or a John Degenkolb. Um, but I don't think there's there's ever really been any noticeable drop off in his performances. Um, he's he's never lost his consistency. He's always been, you know, someone who finishes third, fourth, and fifth in bunch sprints, not sixth, seventh, eighth, um, and that hasn't really changed. It was really fascinating to watch today what what his team were doing and how they were doing it because Sagan himself looked in in trouble, sort of on the you know just on the edge of of being able to sustain the pace that they were they were maintaining on the on the climbs his jersey was zipped down he looked he looked like he was trying um you as think? you as you'd expect um and i i spoke to his sports director Jens Zemka at the finish just about how they managed their resources because um it was it was a finely balanced thing i think i mean and a phenomenal team uh, performance today um did you, when you looked at the the profile today, did you did you think it was possible to do what you did in terms of eliminating quite a few of the sprinters? Yeah, I think we had a, a good talk this morning in the bus, and we built up our strategy together. And the boys were really standing behind it. Yeah, if we dictate a, um, a strategy and then they don't really believe in it, it doesn't make sense. But we really uh, convinced them to take this action because we could drop the poor sprinters and that what happened it was a huge effort yeah and the chance to win then is also not 100% but we had to take this chance instead of waiting 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 and then we come with Grunewegen and Nellie to the sprint and yeah we, we we had to take this action it looked like Sagan himself was going quite deep at times how did you manage the the effort, I suppose, to make it hard enough to drop guys, but not too hard to make it to make him go too deep to, to maybe, you know, compromise yeah, that, his effort. That was a balance we always have to to ride, though not too fast to drop our also lead out boys here yeah, with Botna mm. and Os, and also Peter, but ride fast enough to drop the poor sprinter. Though that was a balance, and there was always communication in the cars, and I think they did it perfectly. And how important is Sagan himself at giving the riders the confidence to do what they did today? I mean, he seems to be very good at taking responsibility and, and handling that pressure. Yeah, I mean, we have to stay calm. Yeah, We, we believe in our riders and uh, we have to calm them down. And we, we always said the success will come. Yeah, We also have to work hard. We have to believe. We have to make a good strategy and then to succeed. Yeah, And everybody was pulling. Even our GC rider, Emo, everybody put his effort in and we succeeded as a team. I think more as, um, as yeah, we deserved it today. So very happy, Jens Emke. Um, I mean, Peter Sagan is rumoured to be possibly leaving Bora Hansgrohe at the well, end of the year. I spoke 
to Chiro earlier today, and I understand Sagan was Sagan and his sort of team entourage were a little bit mm, perturbed, aggrieved at something that was written in La Gazzetta dello Sport yesterday about transfer rumours linking him to Giant and direct energy, direct energy, yeah. and um, yeah, we don't really know. I mean, I saw. I saw Giovanni Lombardi, Sagan's manager, at the finish, and we had a quick chat. He, of course, is Gaviria's manager as well. What else have they got in common, Rich? Who, Gaviria and Sagan? Yes. They um, both had COVID, didn't they? That's and, right. Um, Giovanni yeah. said that Sagan's was quite... It was quite bad, and it set him back a, a fair bit this year. Um, three or four weeks after, I guess, his positive test, he he'd still... He was still a litre down in his lung capacity. And Gaviria, of course, had it last year. Um, he did it twice, I think, Gaviria. Well, yeah, Giovanni said he thinks and they think that the second one was a false positive. But he certainly had it last year. And it you know, not it hasn't really been talked about much, um, how much it affected him. But Giovanni certainly thinks that it did affect him. His, his results certainly haven't been... Um, well, at the level they were three or four years ago. He won at Burgos last year as soon as racing started up again, but since then he's really struggled. At the Giro, he's looked in decent form, hasn't he? He's been and third again, or fourth. Like Sagan, he's been trying to uh, do it slightly differently, hasn't he? Knowing perhaps that he can't rely on that finish to the same extent that he might once have done, he's been quite inventive, quite resourceful, uh, and he was pretty close today. I mean, Sagan won convincingly, but um, Gaviria was a pretty good second. Yeah, and I, I wasn't sure what or which Fernando Gaviria would come into the bus paddock, whether it'd be a, a very angry, upset Fernando Gaviria or a pretty phlegmatic one, and it was the latter. Oh, no, nah, I think okay. I think we did a good job and Seba Molano led me out perfectly. I couldn't finish it off perfectly, but we gave everything. When I saw a way through in the sprint, I just got my line slightly wrong. I wanted to go to one side of Peter, then he moved slightly, but I can only congratulate him. He did a great sprint. Bora also deserved it because they did a great job. They used every rider and just went full gas the whole way. I had a hard time staying in the group, but I hung on. Although it cost me a lot. We end up second. We just have to be patient because there are a few more opportunities left. Just on Gaviria, Rich, a few transfer rumours starting to swirl about him. It's no secret that he's out of contract. Again, just on that, um, chatting to Giovanni Lombardi's manager tonight. The the sort of indications, Giovanni is, is dip- He's not someone who gives a lot away when it comes to transfer. He to give interviews, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he doesn't give interviews. And he doesn't give a lot of away. Um, but he did say to me tonight that it's looking increasingly like he might stay at UAE. Well, the other uh, interesting point in the race today was the uh, the sprint between Bernal and Evenepoel. And I guess that told us that if Evenepoel's going for three seconds, as he was there, he is very much um, got his eyes on the pink jersey at some point and we might on Wednesday see another sort out on the gravel road stage um, I think that's encouraging you know he's not just riding conservatively and, and, and you know trying to get through this his first three week tour as, as, as well as he can I mean that looked like it cost some considerable effort for both of them Bernal played that down at the finish De Kooning quick step normally so good in situations like that made a little bit of a hash of it, I thought. I was surprised not to see Remy Cavagna up there. It was um, Peter Seri who began the lead out, which is odd because he's a climber. And uh, didn't, yeah, it was a, it was a strange effort from them and, and it left Evenepoel to go very early. It was pretty agonising to watch, actually, non, non-sprinters sprinting. Um, and Bernal then got up there. He got a bit of help from Ghana, Narvaez, clipped off and got the got the three seconds and uh, Evenepoel got one second closer to Bernal I'm not sure that was really worth the effort yeah I must say Giuseppe Martinelli the Astana director sportive said to us in earlier in the Giro that he thought the Koenig Quickset were the strongest team in the race I don't see how you could you could legitimately argue that at the moment I think that Ineos Grenadiers are um, a better rounded and you know if you you took go by head-to-head matchups, then Cavagna is the Koenig Quickstep's Ganna. 
And Ganna at the moment looks like a real weapon. He looks like a battering ram who who is going to be useful for Bernal. If, if Danny Martinez is the Mars probe, the Mars robot, what is what is Ganna? He's more of a He's sort of pneumatic drill, isn't he? Yeah, like, yeah. Or a rocket. Yeah, um, and Ganna, he was useful again today in that sprint. I mean, it's fairly insignificant in the overall scheme of things. One second either way. Um, and I, De Koenig certainly weren't worried about that or worried about... Um, any energy that Evanapol might have lost in the sprint today. Um, in fact, I did speak to one of their direct sportifs, um, and Who was that, I think we're going to have to rely on our good friend Hugo again for the pronunciation. That's an easy one, uh, Daniel. It's Klaas uh, Lodewijk. I repeat, Klaas Lodewijk. So here he is. We don't usually see Remco Evanapol and Egan Bernal sprinting together. I mean, how did it come about from your point of view? Well, at the end, the, the seconds were, were suddenly there because the, we got the break. And uh, yeah, we just anticipate on the situation. And uh, at the end, yeah, we just gained one second uh, compared to Bernal, but uh, it's a second. Ganna is proving a bit of a problem. Um, you know, if you want to try things like that, he's always there and he's always ready to jump on you. Yeah, for sure. He's a... Uh, He's a big help, uh, of course, for uh, Bernal. Uh, but uh, I think once we go in the big mounds, uh, he will drop for sure. Um, but uh, like I said before to your colleagues, um, later on this Giro, we don't gonna fight anymore for those bony seconds because maybe it's gonna be seconds and minutes if you're really good. So uh, now we just uh, need to stay calm, recover, and uh, focus on the next stages. That's great. Do you go to Montalcino tomorrow to look at the stage or just rest? We already did, so we know what's, uh, what will come. The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, some lovely bells there, um, Daniel, providing a bit of a soundtrack to our, our podcast this evening. And we say a big thank you to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. Um, they've helped us so much over the last five years and uh, if you want 25% off your science and sport products go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the code SISCP25 here we go SISCP25 I'm almost as good with uh, science and sport promotion codes as you are with Italian regions now oh wow um, and uh, yeah you're better at that than you are with uh, Flemish names um, I should also just uh, give you a little reminder that our Super Sunday competition, sponsored by Science and Sport, is running again. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to enter, predict the winner of Sunday's stage, and be in with a chance of winning an £80 uh, bundle of Science and Sport goodies. Our friend Hugo Korvitz told me the other day that you're not named after Cobra Bryant. Kobe Bryant, the basketball yeah, player. Yeah, did you know that today, after 50 kilometers, you're going to be going through Rieti, where Kobe Bryant lived for three years? Yeah, it's you. I didn't knew that, but yeah, it's a nice fact. Do you know much about Kobe Bryant? Yeah, I knew who he is and what he have done, but yeah, that's all. <laughs> you're not a big basketball fan. Um, and what about you? I mean, two days ago, two days ago now, you're in the break, and um, you know, how disappointed were you that, that you couldn't you know, pull off the win there? Yeah, indeed. After Romandia, I got sick, and in this Giro, I didn't have the feeling of good legs. And in Romandia, was really good, so I expected uh, yeah, same shape, but I still have um, not a legs at the moment. So I was disappointed because that was a big chance to have a win in Giro, and yeah, I hope there will be another one with uh, good legs that time. And why is the why are the brakes having so much success at the Giro? I mean, they were caught yesterday, but almost went to the finish. And they're going to the finish almost every day. Yeah, indeed, it's true. I think uh, yeah, only in the sprint stages there is someone controlling some teams. And in the, the more heavier stages, there's always like the C teams ride for GC and not for the stage so far. So the break gets uh, freedom. You've, you've no longer got Caleb in the team. I don't know if you've seen some of the reaction in Belgium. It's been a bit crazy. Um, Eddie Merckx is saying that he's disrespected the race. I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah, it's uh, not a matter of disrespect. I think he had really knee problems, so you want to yeah to do good results in the next of the season. And maybe when he continues, he put that in danger. So, but yeah, he needs problems where not fake. 
Did you know about his knee problem that morning? Yeah, I knew. We all knew. Well, how about that, Rich? Um, that was quite extraordinary. Um, you, you get a very f smug feeling um, as a journalist, don't you, when you've got some kind of tangential sort of um, whimsical theory or idea and then you involve you somehow involve a rider in it who is a sort of slightly unwilling do you, do you, do you or unwitting participant and um, which was the case with Koba Hosens this morning and um, but um, you know lo and behold um, he led the peloton into Rieti and paid Kobe Bryant the perfect tribute do but you think that you gave him the idea I'm not ruling it out <laughs> I didn't get to speak to him at the finish today, but I will track him down tomorrow just to just to verify that. But there were some Belgian journalists, I think, who had cottoned on, you know, and um, they picked up on it as well, and they were getting quite excited. What, ex what an extraordinary, you know, turn of, as you said, serendipity. Well, I guess he, he rides for a lot of Sudal, and his team has, well, his sprinter has been in... In the news, a strange well, uh, little him row there. has flared up, hasn't it? Yeah, we, we heard... Caleb Ewan's decision to leave the race early yeah we heard the old um but uh, what are we call him the, the belgian mamba rather than the black mamba kobe bryant of course was the black mamba um, he coined this this term this concept of mamba mentality and um yeah kobe hosen certainly showed that today but we heard him there um talk about caleb ewan and obviously as you would expect as far as he is concerned it was all you know as the team said at the time it was an unfortunate accident in the team hotel and on the reactions in belgium i mean i think really that the one that people are are slightly surprised by and and the one that's causing the most controversy is Merckx's, isn't it? Merckx, who said it was disrespectful and that he should be, Ewan should should forsake his bonuses from Lotto Sudal. But this always, I mean, I remember people saying the same about Cipollini when he left the tour, and Cipollini was disrespectful, you could argue, because he made no bones about the fact that he was going to the beach. Well, he also deliberately, allegedly, well, allegedly, I think by his own admission, he used to crank up the the air conditioning in his room to try to get ill <laughs> to, to legitimise his early exits. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I've struggled to get really exercised by this, but um, I, I do remember a couple of years ago at the Vuelta, Rowan Dennis won the, the time trial and basically then um, announced in the press conference that that was it, he was off. And and I suppose the, the sense you have is of a rider just using the race for his own ends, but, you know... There, you, you, there's nothing to you can't make a rider ride all three weeks there are all number of reasons why a rider might withdraw early um, I don't know I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd love to have a really strong opinion on this but I don't yeah and, and in Caleb Ewan's case it's a choice between finishing a Giro and a Tour and not doing the Vuelta which you could say you know if you were Spanish you might say oh it's disrespectful Caleb you'd never come to the Vuelta what he's actually doing is he's trying to win stages in all three Grand Tours which you know in itself is a would be a remarkable achievement and it, it is a, a sort of tip of the hat to cycling's heritage and history by you know honouring those three great races on the other hand, maybe it'd be more sensible for the riders not to say in press conferences that they're going to leave early. Because here he a lie, he, you mean? Well, he Were said, you? well, not not to lie by mission. Maybe just just don't, you know. I think he 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 did say that he would be leaving early, as Rowan Dennis did a couple of years ago at the Vuelta. Here he's left even earlier than he intended, I think, because he did injure his knee. Because today would have been a stage that he would have fancied and perhaps been a, well, yeah, a favourite I mean, for you know the issue of respect or not respect is one thing but Merckx is effectively accusing him of lying as well which is a much more serious accusation <sighs> yeah but these you know your Merckx's and your Eno's will always have a lot to say about and you wonder, wonder if Hugo you will tell us what Roger de Vlaming thinks you, yeah, well you wonder sometimes especially when they, these opinions are in newspaper columns how much um is really from the horse's mouth, and how much of it is they are they are sort of egged on to an opinion on on something, and and it can be maybe slightly embellished. I don't know. Anyway, um, shall we move on to another couple of sick riders? Well, yeah, and another Aussie. First of all, the big breakout star of last year's Giro d'Italia, Jai Hindley, who we we kind of expected to be in the shake-up, didn't we, this year? Although he had quite a quiet spring. 
Um, and he's not been that far off in the hilly stages so far, far, or he hadn't been until yesterday, but obviously not quite at his best. I was curious to know, to find out what is going on with Jai Hindley. And um, yeah, I spoke to him this morning in the mix zone. Um, just an assessment of your Giro so far. What's worked, what hasn't worked, and um, how satisfied are you or not? Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's pretty disappointing, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, it was not like the smoothest run in with uh, illness and uh, crash. And then, uh, yeah, I also pulled up pretty sick after the fourth stage, after Sestola there. So, yeah, I've had like multiple COVID tests, so we're pretty sure it's not COVID. It's uh, just just like regular a regular cold or flu or something so yeah hasn't been the easiest but uh just trying to make the most of it and yeah we're also still in a really good position with the team with Roman right up there and uh yeah we've also got Max Cantor for the sprint stages so yeah we'll see what we can do so as far as you're concerned there's, there's something wrong it's not you know it's not timing it's not the you know you might find that extra two percent there's something that you don't quite feel like yourself no no it's uh yeah i'm really uh not at 100 percent, which has been uh, super disappointing for me personally but yeah it's just the way it is and can't really change it at the moment so yeah so get to the rest day and then what tomorrow sleep as much as possible and just and just hope yeah pretty much yeah just uh try put the feet up and rest as much as i can and uh reassess from there but yeah like i said i think as a team we're still in a pretty good position and uh yeah still still right up there in the fire as far as i'm concerned with with Rahman and uh yeah we'll see how it plays out so that's that's certainly um, half an answer, isn't it, Rich, as to what is wrong with Jai Hindley? Um, he didn't sound there very hopeful about turning it around, did he? I mean, I think as a rider, you get a good sense for these things. And he obviously, you know, doesn't feel that it's just, you know, 5% that's missing. He feels that there is some issue with his body that um, I don't know whether he's going to be able to remedy that in in the, the next two weeks. Probably not. I just hope that it doesn't then affect the rest of his season because you would imagine that the Tour de France might now be on the cards if the Giro, you know, doesn't go the way he and the team wanted it. I know that's the that is the big dilemma, isn't it? And it, it's a tough situation. I mean, these races are hard enough when you're fully fit. You know, when you're when you're battling something, it's even harder. And when you're doing that in your first Grand Tour, it's even harder again. A rider I've been kind of keeping an eye out for is Matteo Jorgensen, the 21 year old at Movistar, um, who's uh, you know, well, he's he's ridden so well that he's earned himself a big contract extension at Movistar. Another ginger. A lot, a lot of ginger, ginger riders, and he's tall, isn't well. he? He's a yeah, big lot, guy. Lot of ginger riders. Name you top five ginger riders off the top of your head. Um, Fiorelli, uh, Bardiani is ginger. De Marchi is ginger. Just at this race, you mean? Um, I, I don't know. Tail Gagan Hart, I mean, Jack Tail, Hay. Yeah, um, Quinn Simmons. There are a lot of. There's a whole, a whole glut so, of maybe, good I, ginger I riders. I sense a kilometre zero coming on, Daniel. Um, tell us about your comment to zero today before we hear from Matteo Jorgensen. Well, it's the story, quite simply, it's the story of uh, Giada Borgato, who is commentating on the race for Italian state broadcaster Rai. And this is uh, quite a, uh, a big step for um, women in sports broadcasting in Italy because no woman has ever been a commentator on, on the Giro d'Italia before for Rai. Um, so I spoke to Giada at the weekend. We had quite a long conversation. And also her uh, partner Eros Capecchi arrives for Bahrain victorious and um, yeah a, a couple of other keen observers both of um, Jada and what she's doing at this Giro and the whole issue of women in cycling and women in cycling media as well well Matthew Jorgensen um, I've been keeping an eye on his results and, and they haven't really been what I expected at this Giro so I spoke to him this morning to find out how he was getting on in his first Grand Tour Ah, it's been pretty rough so far, honestly. I've been pretty sick, really sick the first week, and yeah, a few nights with a fever even, and coughing every stage, so it's been tough. I've been just just fighting to finish this, the days, and um, yeah, I mean, it's starting to feel a bit better. Yesterday I felt a little better, and the day before too, so hopefully a little by little, and with the rest day tomorrow I can come out of it. 
I wondered. I, 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 you know, I thought when I was looking through the results that, you know, I thought you'd be, you'd be up there some of those stages. So that's difficult. I mean, when did you start to come down with that? Was it as the race got underway? Uh, yeah, the, the day after the TT, I woke up like just had terrible mucus in my nose and it was starting to get into my lungs then so I was I kind of knew that it was going to be tough and yeah I wish I had been up there too I think yeah I don't know I just haven't been feeling myself at all so hopefully I can get better as the race goes on. Not an easy way to start your first Grand Tour. No no not easy at all uh, I had a, I expected a lot more of myself so it's, it's hard to accept a little bit but I think uh, it'll get better I'm hoping. How do, you, how do you adjust to that? Do you think, well, I'm here for learning mainly anyway, try to get myself healthy again and come through this and then, you know, the main thing I suppose is to try and finish the race, is it? Yeah, for sure. The main thing that I've been thinking the past few days is just to finish the each day because it's been a challenge each day, but also we have to help Mark. I mean, it's super important that uh, I'm here to learn, but I'm also, we have Mark up there in GC and it's very important to keep him safe on days like today and yesterday, so it's still you know there's still some responsibility even if I'm not like challenging and getting a break or something what's the what's the, the biggest thing you've learned so far about Grand Tour racing in the first week and a bit yeah I always kind of thought I've always heard before where people are like oh you just don't want to go too deep you know in the first couple weeks and I never really understood what that meant like going too deep it, it seems like all these GC guys probably need to go all out on the GC days anyway even the first week but no I started to realize that there's a difference kind of between you know, going going full in and, and trying to win the stages in the first week and, and sitting back a little bit and, and seeing that for myself has been, yeah, big to see it. And uh, I kind of understand now what it takes to, to be a GC rider in a, in a Grand Tour. E quello di, di Amatrice, 5, sì, sì. Mm. tutti superiori a 5 e 5, 5 e mm. 6. E lei si chiama? Eh, Raffaello. Di... Originario di Roio, di, di Roio, Roio, Roio Poggio. Dove sta l'università? Noi avevamo due università e adesso niente. Prima sì. venivano 20.000 ragazzi su. Who was that, Daniel? Well, Richard, we were very early at the start this morning, weren't we? So we thought we'd have a, a walk around L'Aquila, which is a big town and in right in the middle of Italy, really, in Abruzzo. Um, quite a fetching place, certainly in the centre. But that was a gentleman I came across. Um, Raffaello was his name. And we talked about uh, an issue that you can't really escape in L'Aquila. And it's the earthquake of 2009, of April 2009, um, which killed uh, around 275 people and caused huge, huge damage. And, you know, as we mentioned the other day um, with the, the earthquake in Umbria in 2016, the reconstruction um, effort has been has been beset by by controversy and, and and problems and delays and still so you know it's now 2021 so we're 12 years on from that earthquake in L'Aquila and as Raffaello told me this morning it's still very much a work in progress he said that you know private companies private businesses were, were pretty much well, fine in the sense that they were able to re rebuild and, and restart within a couple of years. But um, it's a different story in the public sector, although, you know, the sort of showpiece buildings of L'Aquila, as we saw today, are in very fine shape, aren't they? And, and you know, it looks as though a lot of the resources have gone on restoring those. And, and you know, understandably, because tourism is, is or had been until the pa pandemic, a big source of income for a lot of these towns in central Italy. So, a lot of money's been spent on that, but things like universities, for example, Raffaello told me that he lives just next to L'Aquila's University, and that was pretty much flattened and has never been rebuilt, um, or the main buildings have never been rebuilt. 55 students in the in the um, university actually died, lost their lives. And, um, you know, the, 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 well, the tragedy, among other tragedies of all of this, is that, well, Raffaello told me that he has lived through now, since that earthquake, um, well, four further 
serious earthquakes in L'Aquila. And, and everyone has left a kind of trauma. You know, he, he told me about you know, having to rescue his grandson um, from the snow in one of them. And, um, and obviously there's, there's a fear, there's the spectre of further earthquakes because this is on a, uh, a fault that's obviously very active. And that, that looms over um, the city of L'Aquila. And it's, you know, it, it's a disaster. It's a moment in time that happened in 2009. But as I say, 12 years on, it's not something that's been put to bed by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, talking about earthquakes, Rich, I mean, we mentioned the Basilica of San, uh, San Francesco, which is just above us. Um, in 1997, there was a terrible earthquake in Umbria. And the vault completely collapsed in the Basilica of San, uh, San Francesco. And there was an unprecedented sort of reconstruction effort which took place there and really underlined you know, how dear Italy holds its, its, um, you know, its history and its heritage, whether it's architectural. And, you know, that was a, an effort that was kind of praised all, um, all over the world. Experts were from, you know, all sorts of different countries were brought in to reconstruct the Giotto's um, frescoes. And, and, you know, you look at it now, and I said earlier, being unkind from a distance, um, it kind of looks as new as one of those very gaudy hotels in, you know, in Dubai or Qatar. It's sparkling. Yeah, it does. I mean, up, I mean you consider up that's close. 13th century. Yeah, up close, you, it doesn't look quite quite the same, but it's a beautiful blue sky we've got. And it's it, these hilltop towns they do, they do kind of shine don't they um they've got this um this quality to them uh there's some so many of them and we passed you mentioned already a few that we passed today i didn't even wasn't even familiar with you know um the, the and, and in umbria especially um there are these beautiful towns everywhere you turn it it, it is very it, it is very tuscan looking isn't it really uh, yeah it's here. a little bit greener um you don't get necessarily, I mean, the, the area in Tuscany, so south of Siena in particular, you get these fantastic sort of burnt, you know, colours and shades and the, the classic images that you, you know, there's, there's one very sort of cliched image now. I think it's the final scene in Gladiator with the cypress trees and the little chapel. It's slightly different here. Mm. Um, but yeah, the arch is, and the stone is slightly different, slightly lighter. And as you say, I mean, um, particularly in the evening, catches the light perfectly, and you the, these these towns just sort of sparkle like jewels in the hillsides. But we've really come in the last twenty four hours from the mountains of Abruzzo um, to far more sort of benign landscape of rolling rolling hills, um, and. Uh, well, the Giro will be spending a bit of time in this sort of terrain over the next few days. We haven't stayed days, on the winery for a couple of days. We have time <laughs> for that. Well, listen, let's <laughs> well, hear, before we go tonight, from our diarist, who, um, as we know, having just listened to his diary, is uh, sitting very close to us and is going to com- come for a ride into Assisi tomorrow. Yeah, here we are, the first rest day. Um, ten days in, ten stages. Finally made it. Definitely been a long time coming. Uh, but yeah, pretty satisfied now. Um, staying not too far away from where we finished the day, just a little bit north of Foligno, or however you say it. Almost Assisi. Nice name, that, innit? Um, believe it's a pretty nice place. Have a little ride in tomorrow, hopefully. Don't think any coffee stops are allowed, unfortunately. But yeah, um, job done, I guess, really, for the first rest and you know, if, if we're going to say what, where we hope to be for the first rest day, to be, to be sat in second, fourteen second down, good that, not bad. Second half of the Giro is going to be a lot more difficult, a lot more de- decisive for sure, but not a bad situation to be in, that's certain. Um, weather was great today, I uh, forgot to put suntan cream on, got burnt, rookie, mistake that. Um, and yeah, uh, felt truly awful in the start. Had yesterday in the legs. Glad it was an easy break. Um, they sort of just rolled off. No one looked in the mood, actually, to be honest. A lot of people saying the same thing. And then Bora took the race on, took it by the scuff of the neck. Went full down one of the first little distance. We had like three little bumps, but yeah, the first climb was okay, but then they went fast down the stents, straight into the next climb, ripped that one, that straight down, ripped the last one. It was pretty hard, to be honest. Um, managed, felt better, but yeah. Glad we weren't going any faster. Obviously, some of the big name sprinters went backwards, um, which is a bit of a relief because, yeah, 
like I was on my limit. So if those guys aren't going backwards, then I'm definitely in trouble. Um, and then, yeah, there was obviously a little bit of excitement for the intermediate sprint. A lot of excitement for one second game, but yeah, fair play for taking it on Remco. Um, seemed like he had good legs anyway from the little video highlight. Yeah, just doesn't really sprint, just powering away. So yeah, nice to see. Um, relatively straightforward finish. Obviously, it helped that it was a reduced group. Um, stayed in position, then got out of there. You know, a couple of k to go, three k to go, and yeah, not a lot to do tomorrow. Stay in bed. Having some burgers and chips tonight. That'll go down well. Feel like we've earned that. So yeah, I'm gonna enjoy tomorrow. Take it easy. Recover a little bit. Um, and hope to. Yeah, bounce back a bit for the second half of the Giro. But anyway, yeah, thanks for listening. James Knox of De Quick Quickstep. Well, Rich, dinner awaits. Uh, last night, we mentioned the spaghetti alla chitarra. And then, to my immense disappointment, the waitress showed up literally as soon as we finished recording the pod. And she announced that there were no spaghetti, spaghetti alla chitarra, but they did have tonarelli, which is basically the same thing. It's just the name they give to Not, them. But Another, more than two millimetres. Yeah, and they, it's the name they give to it, you know, 100 kilometres further south in Rome. But she obviously thought this was going to be a big drama. You know, I was going to I was going to start throwing cutlery when I found out they didn't have spaghetti alla well, obviously, obviously, your reputation precedes you. Well, yes, but it was definitely a contender for the best pasta dish of the Giro. I think I said, didn't I, in the episode even, because we were looking at the menu at the time, it was saffron, um, saffron, what else were in porcini and maybe speck well i chose the wrong night to go for my first pizza of the giro then but the pizza was very nice as well um so well let's, I'm, i've got high hopes for tonight in a cc but it's a monday night so will that be a problem or yeah, it should be okay unfortunately in our lodgings the restaurant is closed but we'll we'll have a a walk up that very nasty little climb we'll go for a giro vagando 15 percent climb i'm not sure um how you'll fare on that i, I, I like a climb you'll i like be, a climb uh, you'll be, in the, you'll be in the small ring. You'll be in the you'll be in the twenty eight. I'll do a Bernal. I'll put it in the fifty three, just as we're nearing the top. And uh, well, as soon as I smell dinner, I'm off. Well, Rich, let's say goodbye and let's um, let's make sure we get a picture of this sunset. Yeah, and thanks again, everybody, for the lovely uh, correspondence we're getting, feedback we're getting. Um, you can email us contact at thecyclingpodcast.com, and if you want to leave a review on iTunes please do so. Um, we're very heartened by some of the messages you've been sending. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs>